All right, as Ben said, we're going to continue in our uh, working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Really, we've only got a few more weeks to go uh, before we're done. Don't say amen. Don't say amen. Uh, but we've got a few few more weeks uh, before we finished up uh, with this book. Um, this morning we'll be uh, uh, continuing on with a longer section, and then we'll have a little bit longer section next week as well. Um, you know, I think about words a lot, which is probably good considering that's what I do <laughs> for a living is is use words. So I, I think about words. I think about the context of words. Um, over the years, I, I was was thinking about it this week, and over the years, I've probably preached about two thousand sermons. And now, don't uh, don't fall out for thinking about the folks, the poor folks that have had to listen to <laughs> all of those, like my sweet wife. <laughs> but I probably had to preach, uh, or probably gotten been blessed to preach close to two thousand sermons. And I don't know if you know this, but but when I sit down to do sermon preparation, I, I write down a manuscript. It doesn't always come out the way that it's written down, but I, I write down a manuscript of what that sermon uh, is supposed to be, is supposed to look like. That's part of my study process. And, and really, when I do that, each one of those manuscripts comes up to about 3,000 words. So for you math scholars in the place, 3,000 words times... 2,000 sermons, that's 6 million words. <laughs> that's a lot of words, isn't it? And that doesn't, that doesn't include all the Bible studies and prayer meetings and counseling and teaching and just regular meetings and regular conversations over the years. And if you add all of that up with those 6 million words, that's a lot of words, isn't it? Now, some of you might think some of those words are not necessary. <laughs> but regardless of that, that's a lot of words. There was a study that was done uh, several years ago about the typical, num- typical number of words that we speak each day. That study found, I don't know how they put together this study, but it found that men typically speak around 7,000 words per day. 7,000 words per day. Now, if you take that 7,000 and multiply it by 365, that comes to 2.5 million words per year, guys. That's a lot of words. And the ladies in the house better refrain from saying amen, because that was the guys. (laughs) Ladies, we are blessed to hear 20,000 words a day from you. 20,000 words per day times 365 days per year, that comes to 7.3 million words per year. And guys, we're blessed to hear them, aren't we? If you find yourself in a hole, it's best to put down the shovel and quit digging. So we we enjoy hearing all of those 7.3 million words per year. Guys and ladies, you can have all the fun that you want to with that statistic throughout the day and throughout the week, reminding each other about that. You know, that's your business. You can handle that however you want to. But the point is, we are swimming in a sea of words. We are surrounded by words all the time. Each day of our lives, we are inundated with words, aren't we? Solomon, this writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon was definitely a man of words. Uh, 
He was known for his wisdom and for the way that he crafted words, the way that the Lord used him to craft words. The tragic thing about the words that Solomon spoke is all of those words that he spoke left him empty. Left him empty. Despite all of the words of our life, our passage this morning shows us how Solomon, how he questioned it all, how he said it all, how he saw it all, how he heard it all, and how he still, and despite all of that, how he still couldn't find the words that he was looking for. The first thing that we see is he tells us that he questioned it all in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6. So go there with me, if you will. Chapter 6, verse 10 says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? For, for everything that Solomon was, at his, at his very core, if you had to give one defining title or one defining characteristic to Solomon, you could say that Solomon was a philosopher. Now we can say that he was a philosopher. That's long before the, the term was invented. It's long before he, he lived long before the term was invented. He lived long before, certainly before the, the discipline, the study discipline of philosophy. But regardless of that, at his core, he was a philosopher. The, the word philosophy, the, the word philosophy, if you break it down, it, it means one who studies or one who loves wisdom, loves studying wisdom. And that's what Solomon spent his whole adult life doing was studying wisdom and trying to figure out how to apply wisdom under the sun. As a philosopher, he keeps coming back to the most basic questions of life, and that's those two questions that he asks in verse 12. Those most basic questions of life, if any of you have ever taken philosophy, these are the epistemological questions. You can write that down and press your friends at lunchtime. But he asks these most basic questions of life in verse 12. He says, what is life about and what happens when life's over? The two most basic questions. And he spends his time trying to figure those out. And in asking those questions and in spending a whole lot of words trying to answer those questions, he decides that all the words that he's invested talking about and trying to figure out those questions, that all of those words have been spent in vanity. They've been, they've been wasted. It's as if the more questions that he asks, the more time that he spends investigating, the more time that he spends studying, the less he knows. You know, if one of the things that you could probably recognize about our culture today, and it's not just today, it's been going on uh, for several generations anyway, but especially I think in our culture today, everybody questions everything, don't they? And we're encouraged to question everything, whether it's politics or economics or education or climate or religion or even gender. We're, we're encouraged by our culture to question everything. You question everything in classrooms, in boardrooms, in coffee shops, in debate stages. Everything is being questioned all the time. And the sad thing is in many of these forums, in many of these 
these questioning times, questions aren't being asked to try to really figure out or try to really learn or to try to understand something. The questions are being asked to undermine assumptions that are already made. The more words, the more questions, the more questions, the more vanity. And Solomon asked, what's the advantage to any of it? Solomon questioned everything. And the words that he came up with, the answers that he came up with, were just just empty. They were vain. They were like chasing a puff of smoke. But not only did Solomon question it all, Solomon said it all. Look at verses 1 through 14 of chapter 7. And you'll notice in, uh, depending on how your Bible is formatted, you'll notice that these verses are uh, written in such a way or formatted in such a way that it indicates that it's poetry. So he's moved from prose to poetry in these 14 verses. So follow along with me starting in verse 1. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better, to go, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the faith, face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise in the house, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth, that's joy making. Verse five. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools." Say not, why were the former days better than this? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You know, this to me, this is the most, as we've gone through this study of Ecclesiastes, this is the most heartbreaking thing to me about Solomon, about his life. Solomon was gifted by God to be the wisest man on the face of the earth. He, he was incredibly gifted by God, but he was a confused man. He was a troubled man. He was a sinful man. He took all of those good gifts that God gave him and he wasted his life on immoral sex and sinful pleasures and greed and lust and pride. He took all of those good gifts of God and he wasted them. All of that vanity all of those wasted, amazing gifts, all of his life he spent chasing the wind. But despite that, God still chose to use Solomon in an amazing way, in a tremendously mighty way. God chose to speak His wisdom through Solomon. 
despite who Solomon was. He chose to speak his wisdom through Solomon. The Holy Spirit of God still chose to inspire Solomon to write inerrant, infallible Scripture. And that blows my mind. The Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to write most of the Proverbs, to write all of Ecclesiastes, and to write the Song of Solomon. He even inspired him to write two Psalms. The 72nd Psalm and the 127th Psalm are both of Solomon. Inspired, infallible, inerrant Scripture through this guy. Solomon's wisdom was real. Solomon's wisdom was God-given, and he wrote God's Word. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture. How much Scripture? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture. All Scripture includes Solomon's writings, and it includes these wise sayings that are in verses 1 through 14. So, so look at those. Look at these wise sayings that he gives here. Verse 1, he says, "...having a good name in this world is priceless." And in many, many, in, in many ways, in, I guess in all ways, if you're a believer, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Verse 2 says it can be more beneficial for you to go to a funeral than to go to a party. Doesn't sound like it. But at parties, you go there to escape the trials and tribulations and reality, but at funerals you are forced, you are forced to be confronted by ultimate reality. So he says it's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to the parties. And by the way, that's, that's why our society is trending away from traditional funerals and focusing on life celebrations. Whatever you do, don't be confronted by the reality of a corpse in a casket. That might make you think about your eternal destiny. Now Solomon's wise, God-inspired words in verses 2 through 4 tell us it's good and necessary to be confronted by mourning and to be confronted by sadness and to be confronted by the reality of death. Laughter and songs and escapist happy talk, they, they don't do you nearly as much good as a little bit of discipline, as a little bit of constructive criticism. You think about it, what's at the heart of discipleship? The heart of discipleship is the same word that that root word comes from as discipline. The heart of discipleship is discipline. And then you move on to verse 7. Verse 7 says, oppression is bad. Bribery is bad. Verses 8 and 9 remind us that it's a whole lot better to be known as a good finisher than just a frequent starter. I don't know about you, but I know plenty of people who start a lot of things but don't finish anything. It's a whole lot better to be known as a good finisher than as a frequent starter. Patience is better than pride. Don't be a hothead. Verse 10 tells us, don't pine away for the good old days. There's no wisdom in sentimental emotionalism. 
Now, does that mean that it's wrong to have fun and to laugh and to sing silly songs and to have good memories of the past? Does it mean that it's wrong to have those things? Does it mean that anger is always wrong? Does it mean that, that you have to stubbornly press on and finish everything that you start no matter how you see along the way that it's not worth finishing? Is that what all of this stuff means? Of course it doesn't mean that. Proverbs, like these Proverbs here in this passage, like the Proverbs that are, that are in the book of Proverbs, are Holy Spirit-inspired general truths for the way that things generally work under the sun. It's, it's like when, when God inspired these proverbial sayings to be written, he, it was like He was shining a light of divine wisdom on the everyday circumstances that we find in a fallen and broken and messed up and jacked up world. It's like little tokens, little nuggets to help you get through the day to get through your life. These Proverbs that we see here that Solomon wrote, these Proverbs that we see throughout the book of Proverbs, they're, they're not ironclad guarantees. They're not covenantal promises from God. Otherwise, you wouldn't see one proverb here saying one thing, and then the next verse, the same proverb says the opposite. No, they're not ironclad guarantees. They're not covenantal promises. In other words, these Proverbs are not God-given formulas saying that if you do this, then God is obligated that He has to do this. That's not what they were given for. Verses 11 and 12 says that when you apply God's wisdom, it will generally make your life better. And then he adds to it, he says, especially if you've got a little bit of money to go with it. It'll generally make your life better. But no matter how much divine wisdom you apply, there are some crooked things in this life that you're not going to be able to straighten out. No matter how many of these, these proverbs that you try to live by, there are crooked things in this life under the sun that you're not going to be able to straighten out. And that's where you have to understand that the wisdom of proverbs, the wisdom here in these sections in Ecclesiastes aren't the gospel. God gave them to us to help us to live our lives wisely. But mostly, He gave these to us so that they would point us to Jesus. So that they would point us to the fact that in this crooked and fallen world that we live in, the only solution is not wise living. The only solution is Jesus. Amen? And that's why He gave us these. Yes, Solomon said it all, didn't he? He said thousands of Proverbs. But because he was still coming at things from a perspective of being under the sun, even though it was God's Word, it was still empty to him. And that's the most tragic thing at all. This the most tragic thing of all, this man who that God was using to write his very own word still saw those words as empty. God-given words are still empty if you only try to apply those God-given words 
in a life in a life that is only lived under the sun. God's words, God-given words, will still be empty to you if you try to only apply them for your practical benefit. If you only try to apply God's Word for how it will make your life better or how it will make you prosperous or how it will make your marriage better or how it will heal you physically or how it will whatever under the sun, if that's the only reason that you're applying God's Word, you will find it empty. Solomon questioned it all and Solomon said it all. He'd also seen it all. Look at verses 15 through 20. He starts off verse 15. He says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes, perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. If anybody could say that they had seen it all, <laughs> Solomon, one of the richest men on the globe at that time, Solomon had certainly seen it all. You know, like those farmer's insurance commercials, you've seen those? You know, we, we, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. That's the way Solomon was, right? He, he knew a thing or two because he'd seen a thing or two, and he'd done a thing or two. And here's, here was the crazy thing. He's just gone through 14 verses of this, this, these wise observations. And then he contradicts much of it in these verses. Because in these verses, he's saying what he has seen seems to not line up with what he has said. So because what he saw seemed to contradict what he'd said, he tweaked what he said. Well, here's, here's what he saw. When, when he observed, he saw that good people, righteous people, were dying young. And that these unrighteous, these evil people, were just living long and prosperous and happy lives. He had seen, as he observed things, he had seen that there were, there were idiots trying to lead people who were way smarter than him. And he'd seen seemingly good religious men fall in sin. So all of these wise proverbs, he had seen contradictions to those things in life under the sun. So what he what he tried to do was when he what he saw contradicted what he said, he tweaked what he said. He said, "Okay, since that's the case, since what I see doesn't match what I've said, then just hey, don't don't try to be too wise. Just don't try to be too righteous." It's okay to be a little bit evil, just don't be too evil. Don't be too much of a goody-two-shoes, but don't be too evil. Just don't be an idiot, don't be wicked. Just chill out, live 
somewhere in the middle of the road to kind of kind of keep your head down and live a regular life. Don't don't rock the boat. That stuff about funerals, <laughs> just forget about that and just enjoy the parties. Live life, eat, drink, have a good time with your work. Hasn't he said that several times throughout the book? That was the best that he could do under the sun. You know, when, when you've seen a lot, it seems like the more stuff that you see, the more messed up things that you see in the world, it's very easy to become a cynic, isn't it? You start to see that people, people's words don't match their walk. Ralph Waldo Emerson supposedly said, he said, your actions speak so loudly I can't hear what you're saying. That's where, that's where Solomon was. Seeing it all can be really, really discouraging. Solomon saw more than any of us, both in his life and in the lives of others. He questioned it all. He said it all. He saw it all. He also heard it all. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. You know, this week there was a young lady who was telling me how discouraged that she had been recently. Uh, she, the organization that she was a part of, had had this this meeting, and in this meeting it devolved into just kind of a gripe session. In that gripe session, people were calling her out and calling out some of her initiatives that she had really worked hard in, and they were calling her out, and it just really just discouraged her. Most of us have been there with that, haven't we? You know, people in that that talking. Here's the thing. The voices that scream the loudest usually come from just a handful of the most dissatisfied people. It doesn't necessarily represent the majority. One thousand people can contentedly shop in your store, but the one person who doesn't find the one thing that they want can start screaming about it, and it'll absolutely ruin your day or your week, won't it? Tons of people can enjoy buying your product or watching your video or reading your book, but then when you get the one one-star review, <laughs> it'll ruin you and discourage you. Here's the reality. Anytime that you step up to do stuff, you're going to hear stuff. If you preach, you hear stuff. If you play music... You hear stuff. If you teach, you hear stuff. If you lead or plan or organize or decorate, you're going to hear stuff. If you step up to do something, you're going to hear stuff. And Solomon gives some really wise advice here. He says, when you hear it, don't take it to heart. Don't take it to heart because the reality is, is you probably said something just as hurtful or mean or unthoughtful about someone else or to someone else. Can you imagine all the... I mean, Solomon was king, right? Can you imagine all of the griping and whining and complaining that that man heard? <laughs> he heard a lot, I'm sure. 
Because the reality is, and this is what I tell folks all the time, everybody knows how to do it better until you're the one sitting in the big seat. And when you're the one sitting in the big seat, it's not quite so clear, is it? It's like those young couples. And I love them. They first get married and they... You know, kids are out there in the future and all that kind of stuff, and, and they first get married, and you listen to them talk about those people that don't know how to raise their kids. Uh-huh. I love just hanging around with them until they start to have kids. <laughs> and they realize all of a sudden, ooh, maybe I didn't know as much about it as I thought. See, Solomon says it's best not to take things that you hear to heart because the things that you hear are just words. And his conclusion for all of this is that words are empty. He questioned it all. He said it all. He'd seen it all. And he'd heard it all. And with everything that he'd seen, with everything that he'd said, everything that he'd heard, he found that all of this multitude of words were just vain and empty. And through it all, he found nothing. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is, that's, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? That's his conclusion. He's found nothing. God had made him the wisest man in the world. People came from all over the world just to, just to sit under his wisdom. And we've seen a, a sampling of his Holy Spirit inspired wisdom in our passage this morning. And as you read Proverbs, you see a, a much bigger glimpse of his Holy Spirit inspired wisdom. And you see another sample of it in the Song of Solomon both of which, Proverbs and Song of Solomon, were written much earlier than Ecclesiastes. But here he is. He's at the end of his life, and he's looking back on all of this, and he says, all of that wisdom, all of those wise words that God gave me, all of that, he says, is far from him. Despite all of his vast resources, despite devoting his entire life into testing everything under the sun, to testing all of these wise words of wisdom, despite all of that, he still couldn't figure it out. All the words that he used to question everything was empty. All the wise words that God had given him was empty. All the things that he, that he saw that seemed to contradict the wise words that he said, all of that was empty. All of the words that he had, that he heard were empty, and that's the best that he could come up with. Even though he had written the inerrant, infallible words of God himself, he found those words to be empty. Is that you here this morning? Not that you've written God's Word, but you see God's Word in front of you. You know, you sit here and you listen to the preached Word of God each Sunday and Thursday. You sit under good Bible teaching in Sunday school and in New Life Corps and in youth group and in team kid and in home groups and in Bible studies. You might even take it upon yourself to read and to study the Bible on your own. You might listen to preaching on TV or in podcasts or in, on the radio. You have a steady, continual, you have the opportunity for a steady, continual intake of Bible words but are those words empty 
to you. You feel like you're not getting anything out of the preached Word. You know, I hear that all the time. I, I, I thank God I haven't heard it in here, but, but I hear it all the time. You know what? I, I'm just not getting fed. You ever feel that all this intake of Bible words, you're just not getting anything out of it? You feel like you're not getting anything out of your own Bible reading? Do the words that you start to hear start to, that you hear start to sound repetitive and even boring and dishearteningly empty to you? If that's the case here for you this morning, then you need to understand this. Your fulfillment will not come simply from hearing and seeing and saying godly words. Your fulfillment will only come from doing what those good godly words say. This is how James put it in James chapter 1. Verses 19 through 22. And you might want to just go ahead and turn over there. It's going to be on your screen, but this is a good one to, to turn to. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, if you want the Word of God to accomplish what God desires for it to accomplish in your life, if you want God's Word, if you don't want God's Word to seem empty and void and vain in your life, like it's some sort of a, an accessory that doesn't really apply to you, if you don't want it to be like that, if you don't want all of this Bible that you take in to do you absolutely no good, then you need to do three things. First thing you need to do is you need to listen better than you speak. You need to hear the Word. Now, I've already told you how many words you typically speak in a day. Men, you typically speak 7,000 words. Ladies, you typically speak 20,000 words. That should tell you that one little 3,000-word sermon per week is not nearly enough to keep God's Word from seeming empty to you. That means that you're going to have to feed yourself too. You're going to have to increase your intake. You're going to have to hear the Word, read the Bible, study the Bible, feast on God's Word. So you need to listen better than you speak. Second, you need to humbly and cleanly receive what you hear. In other words, you need to receive the Word. Look, there are some devout atheists out there that know the Bible far better than any of us in here do. They can quote it chapter and verse. And I think we're safe to say that the Bible that they know, the Bible that they quote, the Bible that they read is empty to them. But if you and I, if we approach the Bible with an arrogant, with an unrepentant heart, it's going to be just as empty to you. See, God's Word will be fulfilling and will be rich and will be full to you, but it will not be fulfilling and rich and full to you if you're consciously and willfully living a lifestyle that is contrary to the Scripture that you read. 
And God's Word will be empty to you if you're arrogantly twisting it to fit what culture thinks that it should say or to fit your sinful lifestyle. Then it's going to be empty to you. Listen better than you speak. Humbly, cleanly receive what you hear. Finally, don't just hear the Word, but do the Word. See, when we gather here and look at God's Word, when we sit in Bible studies, when we sit in Sunday school, it's not just some sort of an academic exercise. We're not in training to win Bible Jeopardy sometime. This isn't just so that we can fill our heads with knowledge. No, this is about your eternal destiny. And it's about your present fulfillment. See, the only way that you can experience the fullness of what it means to be in Christ if you live like He tells you to live and you do what He tells you to do. That's the only way it's going to happen. Solomon concluded that his words, not just his words, that all words were empty. He even got to the point where he concluded that God's Word was empty to him. They were empty to him because he lived his life in sexual immorality. They were empty to him because he lived his life in idolatry, worshiping things other than the God of the Bible. He got that way because he lived his life in greed and lust and pride. He got that way because he was trying to live his best possible life under the sun. God has something so much better in store for you and me. And you'll find it when you humbly and cleanly receive what you've seen and heard in His Word. And you'll find it when you start doing all the things that you've seen and heard in His Word. Receive the Word. Do the Word. And the best time to start that is right now.